Amen. Lord, we are humbled by the cross of Calvary, and, and indeed, the great, no greater act of love has ever taken place in human history than that Almighty God would leave heaven, come to earth, and suffer and die in our place that we might have eternal life. And then, Lord, then you pour out your love upon us. You fill us with your spirit. You adopt us into your family. You give us the promise of heaven. Lord, what a peace, what a blessing, what a joy, even in the midst of the greatest trials of this life. Lord, we ask as we go to your word right now that your Holy Spirit would speak. Lord, prepare each and every one of our hearts to receive what you have for us this morning. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Great to see everybody this Sunday morning. Turning your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7. We continue our verse-by-verse study through the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, there'll be one right in front of you somewhere in one of those chairs. All right. Well, since we took a week out last week, we had a Father's Day message last week. I want to take a few moments and catch us up. Remember the book of Revelation. Revelation is, the word is apocalypsis, which means the unveiling. It's the unveiling of Jesus Christ. As we read through this book, we get to know Jesus better. Chapter 1, we saw in the outline in Revelation 1.19, the things which were, that's chapter 1, we see Jesus in heaven in his glorified body. And I think it's important when you think of Jesus Christ, Think of the one that you see in Revelation chapter 1. One with eyes of fire, right? Amen? The God who's in control. Chapters 2 and 3, we move to the church age. And we saw the seven churches, the letters to the seven churches have application for us today. We get to chapter 4 and John is caught up into heaven. Now very clearly to me, that is a picture of the rapture of the church. We see the church mentioned 19 times in chapters 2 and 3, and never again in the book of Revelation. Why is that? Because the church is no longer on earth, but is now in heaven. In chapter 4 and 5, we see John up in heaven, where the focal point in heaven is? Hey, that's a little better, okay. The throne of God, and the one who sits on the throne, and what's before the throne, and what surrounds the throne, amen? Then in chapter 6, we move from the focal point being in heaven to John looking down upon the earth. And what happens is, remember, they were crying out, who can open the scroll? The scroll is the title deed to what? The earth. Very good. And so the title deed to planet earth, the Lord has it in his hands. There's seven seals on that scroll. And as he begins to open them up, the righteous judgment of God comes upon the earth during what is known as the seven-year Great Tribulation. Now what's important about that to be reminded of is that this is indeed an act of God's grace because his desire is that all should come to a saving knowledge of him. And here's one final opportunity for people to be saved. By way of quick reminder, remember each of those seals had something significant. The first seal, remember the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the first horse was a white horse and riding on it was the Antichrist. This is when the Antichrist comes to the earth. Yes, there is an Antichrist. Now, I want to say this. He's not the opposite of Christ. He's not close to Christ. He can't touch Christ. Amen? He's nothing compared to him. But he will come proclaiming himself to be God in the end, but he will initially bring peace to the earth. People will be sucked in by him because the church will have been raptured. The world will be in total mayhem. And along will come this political leader, a very charismatic guy that has answers that the world wants to hear, and they will unite under him. But by the time that second seal is opened... That peace quickly turns to war. 
And there's war upon the earth. It's followed then by famine and then by death and disease. The fifth seal, as we saw, was the cries of the martyrs as they prayed for vengeance. And then that sixth seal was cosmic disturbances. If you remember, there were earthquakes and the sun turned black and the moon turned red and the stars fell to the earth and the sky was split apart and every mountain and island moved out of their places and men were hiding in rocks and in caves and crying out for the rocks to fall upon them and hiding from the presence of God. Guess what? We're only getting started. You get to the sixth seal, it's pretty heavy. But before we get to the seventh seal that we will begin to look at next week, that will encompass the seventh seal and the bowl and the trumpet judgments that are going to make the judgments we've seen so far look like a picnic. But there's a breather in there. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And that's chapter seven. And in chapter seven, what we're going to see is the fact that The question at the last part of verse 6 is going to be answered. Who is able to stand? You know, with all this going on, will anyone survive? Will anybody make it? Or will everyone be destroyed? Well, guys, here's the truth. None of us can stand apart from the Lord helping us to stand. Amen? So chapter 7 takes time out of the action between the 6th and 7th seal to answer that question. We're going to see that there are two groups that are able to stand, and they stand in very different ways. The first group are going to be the Jewish evangelists, who will be preserved on the earth, and God will use them to reach much of the known world with the truth of the gospel. Very well defined. I will say, just as a preview, that a lot of people try to make the 144,000 something that they are not like the church. They can't be the church because the church is in heaven. Amen? You have to spiritualize it. And by the way, as we will see, they are very clearly Jews. Secondly, we'll see not only are those who are preserved through the the time of the great tribulation, but there will be those who God delivers from it. And the way they are delivered, you might think, well, that's not very well good delivery. They're delivered by being put to death. Now remember, there will be men who cry out to be delivered from the tribulation and won't be able to die. And, but at the same time, God will deliver some by bringing... Now guys, for us who know that heaven is real, there's no greater deliverance for us than to leave this body and to be in the presence of Almighty God. Amen? And so some will be persevered through it, and some will be delivered from it. And this is what God does in every single trial that you and I face. He either helps us to persevere through it, or he delivers us from it. Sometimes he calms the storm, other times he calms his child. Amen? And so that's exactly what we're going to see in this morning's text. You know, it's interesting that throughout Scripture, we see God preserving people through trials to use them on the other side. Why would God allow you, why doesn't God just take the trial away? Because he wants us to grow through it and our testimony to grow through it. Remember when he flooded the earth, he preserved Noah and his family, right? That he might use them on the other side of the flood. When he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, he preserved Lot and his daughters. When he destroyed Jericho, he preserved Rahab and her family. And when he destroyed Egypt, he preserved the nation of Israel. So the great tribulation will be a time of unparalleled judgment, disaster, and death, but it'll also be a time of great salvation. I believe, Pastor Dave's opinion, that more people will be saved during the seven-year tribulation than any other time in human history. Praise God for that, amen? 
Now you know why, because you start saying, why is there a seven-year tribulation? Why doesn't he just come back and get over with already? Because there are millions who will be saved during that time. And praise God for that. It continues to show the grace of our God, the unveiling of his heart. Many will continue in rebellion, but there will be great revival. So, the title of the message, Who is able to stand in the day of trouble? In the face of disasters and trials and persecution and righteous judgment. And again, we'll see these two different groups who go through it at this time, stand in the time of great trouble, but they'll have very different results. First, those who are preserved to go through the day of trouble, that they might minister to others. And then those who are delivered from it only after they have endured all the difficulty of the day of trouble. So preserved through it or delivered from it. So let's begin there in verse 1. Who is able to stand in the day of trouble? Those who will be preserved to go through the day of trouble, that they might minister to others. Verse 1. After these things. After what things? After chapter 6. After the six seals have taken place, this is what is going to take place place next after the great earthquakes the sun's been turned to black the moon to red the stars from heaven have falling to the earth the sky is rolled up mountains and islands are moved out of their place men are hiding in the rocks and crying out you know to be delivered from the face of god and the wrath of the lamb and now the scene shifts from the judgment of the ungodly to special protection for the godly here's what it says i saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. So John looks up and he sees four angels. And each of them is holding on the four corners of the earth. This could also be said north, south, east, and west. So from the four directions, they're holding in their hands the wind. They're holding it back. Now what is this wind? This wind is very clearly the righteous judgment of God. And these angels are restraining God's judgment for a moment. Now, here's the reality. God's been restraining his righteous judgment for thousands of years, hasn't he? And here in the middle of tribulation, during this tribulation time, there's going to be a time where he restrains his judgment, restrains his righteous judgment upon the earth for a moment and for a specific reason. Now, These winds are destructive forces of God's righteous judgment, and we know this by looking at Scripture. And Jeremiah says, Against Elam I will bring the four winds from the four quarters of heaven and scatter them toward toward all these winds, and there will be no nations where the outcasts of Elam will not go. In Daniel 7, Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, each different from the other each time you see four winds in scripture it speaks of righteous judgment so they're holding back god's righteous judgment upon the earth and they're doing it for a reason the word holding there suggests that the the winds are struggling to break free in the original language it means that the winds are struggling and they're holding on to them because righteous judgment must come and it needs to come but it's god's grace that is restraining them at this time. So why are these angels holding the winds back? That they should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. They're withholding God's righteous judgment between the time of the sixth and seventh seal because God is going to raise up a mighty army of Jewish evangelists. 
And as he raises them up, he's going to seal them. And before they are sealed with his protection and his hand and his spirit, he wants to restrain the judgment that is coming. He wants them to be prepared to stand. Guys, this is what God does with us. The word of God promises us that he will never give us more than we can bear. And so if that, that's a promise of God, so we know it's true, amen? And you know what? That means that God often is preparing us prior to allowing it to happen. So that's what's happening here. He's going to raise up this mighty army who he's going to use to reach the known world to save millions during the tribulation. But prior to their preparation, he's withholding this time of judgment coming upon the earth that they might be prepared to stand in the midst of it. Verse 2. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So another angel, in addition to the four that are holding the winds back, one comes up from the east. I find it interesting. We know that John's in heaven, looking down. But from Patmos, if you go directly east, you hit Israel. And so one comes up from, potentially from Israel, and he's the one that comes up and commands them to wait. Hold it back. Don't let the righteous judgment come yet until these, these special, called by God, men of God, are sealed. Until they're prepared to receive it. I am so thankful to know how many of you have gone through any trials this year? Raise your hand. Is there anybody's hand that isn't up? God bless you. Trials are coming, okay? But, <laughs> but here's, it's true, isn't it? Count all joy when you fall into various trials, not if. But in the midst of trials, it's good to know that our God knew it was coming before the foundation of the world. He's promised not to give us more than we can bear, and he's been preparing us for it for many, many years. And so there's a peace in that, isn't there? Okay, Lord, you knew this was coming, and you're greater still. I can trust in you. The word, having the seal of the living God. He holds the seal of the living God, this angel. The word seal there is the same word used for a signet ring that the kings and officials of the day, when they wanted to deliver their authority, when they wanted to make sure that everybody knew it was under their command that this was taking place, they would take their signet ring and they would mark it often in wax on whatever document that they were delivering to let everybody know this is from my authority, this is from my hand. And so it's from the hand of God that God is preparing and bringing and and sealing these special men of God that he is going to use. A seal denoted both ownership and protection. Now guys, they were sealed in those days. The king would seal it with his ring. And I'm getting ahead of myself, but we need to be reminded that you and I have been sealed. And we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. It says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, that we have been sealed. That's a mark of ownership. It's a down payment on heaven. It tells us that we belong to him. And so if we know that, if we've been sealed by him, we can trust in him and we don't have to fear or fret or worry or be anxious about anything because our God has his ownership mark upon us and his hand hand of protection, his promise upon our lives. It's interesting, we see this 
uh, in Daniel, and it says, A stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. The point there is that once the king sealed it, it couldn't be changed. Guys, once the Lord has sealed us with his Holy Spirit, he will never leave us nor forsake us. We belong to him forever. We are his treasured possession. Thank you, Lord. Amen? So whatever trials we're going through, remember who owns you. He paid for you a very dear price. You are his treasured possession. That's the God that we serve. That mark served to communicate the king's will. And so too today, it's the mark that tells us and everyone else around us, should tell everyone else around us that we belong to him. Notice it's the mark of the living God. There are no other living gods. Amen? The word of God often refers to him as the living God, as opposed to the dead idols of this world. If you didn't know it, Buddha dead. Right? Muhammad dead. Go down the list. Charles Taze Russell, Joseph Smith, doesn't matter. All the founders of every religion in human existence. When I go to India and I see the Hindu gods and people bowing to a, an elephant carved out of marble, dead God. Amen? And by the way, if you're a dead God, you're not God, right? What kind of God is that if you had to chisel him out of a piece of marble? We serve a risen and living Savior, amen? And guys, we have peace because we serve a living God. Now, what's interesting is that during this time, people are going to be marked, most of them, one way or the other. They're going to be marked with the mark of the beast or with the seal of God. The mark of the Antichrist, remember on the, on the forehead or on the right hand, and the and way it talks about it is it'll be in his image somehow. And as we're about to see, that the image that is sealed upon the 144,000 is the name for God. It's a name for God the Son and God the Father that is stamped on their forehead so that everyone knows who they belong to. Guys, we may not walk around with ink marks on our hands or on our foreheads, but we have the Spirit of the living God dwelling inside of us, and it ought to be just as evident to the world around us that we've been marked by Him. It should be evident in our behavior and our actions and our attitudes. People should see it and go, dude, different. And the answer is amen, because we have Jesus Christ. Amen? In the Old Testament, God marked Israel with blood on the doorpost and the lentils to spare them when he killed Egypt's firstborn. He marked Rahab with a scarlet cord to keep her and those who were with her from being killed. But the illustration that most nearly parallels this present text, let me just read it to you. You can look it up later. Don't turn there. I don't want to lose you guys. But it's in Ezekiel chapter 9, and here's what it says. Now listen to this. Tell me this doesn't sound like the end times. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the men clothed with linen, that's the priest, who had writer's inkhorn at his side. And the Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city and those in the midst of the Jerusalem and put a mark on their foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over the abominations that are done within it. To the others, he said in my hearing, go after them throughout the city and kill those who do not let your eyes spare nor have any pity utterly slay old and young men maids and little children and women who do not come near anyone on whom is the mark 
Here's the point. He said, go into Jerusalem during a time of great rebellion and mark out those who are grieved by what they see and kill the rest of them. And you know what the mark was? In the Hebrew language, it's the letter ta. And that letter is a small t. And guess what it looks like? A cross. So those who are marked with the cross would be delivered. This is way back in the Old Testament, right? Would be delivered when God's judgment came. And so too will you and I be delivered when God's judgment come if you and I have been marked by the cross of Calvary, amen? And sealed by the spirit of the living God. Those with God's mark on them would be spared during the coming destruction. And so too the servants of God who the angel will mark with a seal will be protected and preserved when the judgment comes. Now, he says there, he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth, saying, do not harm the earth and the sea or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So the harm, the damaging devastation that will come to the earth, the sea, the trees will occur when the four angels just let go. Aren't you glad God doesn't let go? People think that this earth is operating and God has no part of it. You've lost your mind. Are you kidding me? There are even Christians that believe that God set everything in order and then just let go, and whatever happens now happens. What kind of God would that be? Guys, our God is in control of everything. Amen? And he never lets go. And, and if and when he ever does, it will be known in a hurry. People's prayer lives will pick up quickly. So the judgment and the judgments that were to follow were being held back until these servants had been marked by God. And again, according to Revelation 14, these servants of God will receive a protective seal on their forehead that contains God's name. And it will serve to protect them during this time of great tribulation. So even in the midst of God's righteous judgment upon a rebellious world, he has those he has marked to boldly proclaim the truth of the gospel. And they are, they are talked about in Revelation 14. They will be faithful, loyal, diligent, holy servants of God during these very dark days, and God's seal upon them will protect them. So they'll have the seal, the mark of God, and God protects them. Guys, you and I have the seal of God, and God protects us. That doesn't mean we won't go through trials, but it means that every trial, every sickness, every difficulty that you and I go through has to go through the hand of God first before it gets to us. So no matter what happens... We can trust that God is in control. If you go and have a minor surgery and they mess it up and put you in a coma, God is in control. Amen? Whatever happens, instead of blaming the world and saying why, we need to look to God and say what. What do you want to teach me, Lord, through this? You're a faithful God. Amen? The Holy Spirit comforts us in times of difficulty and he convicts us in times of disobedience and the bible tells us in second timothy the lord knows who are his and let everyone who names the name of christ depart from iniquity these that are sealed by god are going to be men who live holy lives and we'll talk more about these 144,000 in a moment when we get to them Bible says in Ephesians that do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How many of you, when you sin, are gripped in your heart? If you're not, you need to be born again. Amen? 
That wasn't a trick question. When you're born again, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, right? And that's why when you sin, you feel the the Holy Spirit head slap, right? He he brings conviction. Why? Because he loves us and wants to keep us in the center of his will. And so praise God for that. Aren't you glad that God convicts us? If he didn't, we would just, it'd be game over. We would get so far away. And so he's going to seal these 144,000. He's going to protect them. His hand is going to be upon them. And he is going to use them to bring about the greatest revival in all of human history. Now, wait a minute. If the church has been raptured, who are these servants of God that are still on the earth? Well, here's the answer. The church has been raptured. But these are those who are saved during the Great Tribulation. Which means when the church is raptured, there will be zero Christians upon the earth. Which is going to bring about heavy duty consequences. Holy Spirit removed. But God has never left his creation without someone to proclaim the truth of the gospel. No time in human history. And so because he has removed the church, he is going to redeem those who are on the earth. Many will be saved and they will become the witnesses. So during the great tribulation, there's going to be four ways that he reaches the lost. Four basic avenues. You're going to have the two witnesses. Whether you believe it's Elijah and Moses or who it is, ultimately doesn't matter. But the Bible even tells us that these two witnesses will be testifying in Jerusalem. They will be shot down and left for dead in the streets. And then they will raise from the dead and the whole world will see this. Now, hundreds of years ago, people mocked that. One, there was no Israel. And two, how would everybody in the world see people die halfway around the world? Well, duh, we got television and God knew that, amen? But that's what's going to happen. Now, it could be that these two witnesses are going to be the ones who lead these 144,000 to the Lord. It may also be that these 144,000 have a Paul, a Saul of Tarsus moment. Saul of Tarsus wasn't witnessed to by anyone other than Jesus Christ himself. He was riding on his high donkey, right? Headed to go kill Christians. And he got knocked off his high horse, his high donkey, fell on the ground. And God spoke directly to him and his life was transformed. Can God still do that? And you know what? That may be how these witnesses get saved. Bible also talks about an angel of the everlasting gospel. It talks about a, a major outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So let's talk about these 144,000 witnesses. Look at verse 4. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, of the tribe of Issachar, of the tribe of Zebulun, of the tribe of Joseph, of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Is this pretty clear who these people are? I'm baffled that people try to make this the church. And others have said, well, how is he going to do this? Because if you ask a Jew today what tribe they're from, they don't know. You know what? They don't have to know. God knows. Amen? What tribe are you from? I, got, I don't know. But God knows. Amen? Can God round up 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes of Israel and draw them together and bring them unto salvation? Of course he can't. He's God. You know, when you ask, can God, the answer is almost always yes. There's a few things he can't do. He can't sin. He can't lie, right? 
He can't change his mind because that would mean he was wrong at some point. He never is. So these will be sealed by God, supernaturally called by God to be witnesses during the great tribulation and his hand will be upon them. It will be 144,000 Jews of each of the 12 tribes who had rejected Jesus as the Messiah, but will come to a saving knowledge of him during the great tribulation. Imagine what will happen when suddenly in the midst of the most trying and confusing time in all of human history, you've got 144,000 devout believers in Jesus Christ, Jews who have come to the saving knowledge of him, reaching out to a lost and dying world. How will these Jews be saved again? It may be by the two witnesses. And again, it could be that God just reaches down from heaven and opens their eyes. However God chooses to bring about the result, the end result is this, an army of Jewish evangelists who will faithfully witness in the midst of both God's righteous judgment and the reign of the Antichrist. And I believe it's going to lead to the salvation of millions. And you know what? A lot of the people that are going to get saved are Gentiles. It's going to be the Jews ministering to the Gentiles. Where did we see that? It was in the Old Testament. God's ultimate plan for the Jewish nation was they were his chosen people to be used by him to not only have a relationship with him, but that through them, the Gentiles would be reached. And again, there are Jews for Jesus and Jewish people who are saved, but the Jewish people as a whole have rejected the Lord. So as the Gentiles as a whole have rejected the Lord, amen? But in the midst of that, God's not done. And we need to remember that, that God is not done with his chosen people. He still has a mighty plan to do in them and through them to reach the known world for his kingdom. The Bible tells us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We need to do that, amen? You know what? God says that whoever is on Israel's side is on his side. I'm thinking we need to be on Israel's side. Amen? I'm... You know what? I'm not a real political guy. You've been going to church here long, you know that's true. I'm as pro-Israel as anybody on the planet. You know why? The Bible tells me to be. So guess what? I'm pro-Israel because I'm pro-God. And those are his people, amen? Now, they're in, re- they're in rebellion now. So, God knows their ancestry. They're 12,000 each of the 12 tribes. But here's a few other things we need to know about these guys. And let me tell you why. Because people confuse it. I want you to walk out of here never to be confused again about the 144,000. First of all, we know in Revelation 14 that they are virgins. We also know that they are beginning of what is called a greater harvest. That they are marked by integrity and faithfulness. They are protected by the triumphant and, and hand of God. God's going to bring them through his period of wrath. They're going to meet with Jesus at Mount Zion when he returns. They're going to survive throughout the entire tribulation and not one of them is going to die. How is that possible? God's hands on them, amen? Now let me tell you who they're not. So they're virgins, they're Jews, they're of the 12 tribes, they're men, that's who they are. Here's who they're not. Uh, They're not the church. As I said before, the church has been raptured. There are many people today that say the 144,000 is the church. Well, first of all, is it, can you imagine the church going through the entire tribulation and not one person being martyred? Is that possible? I mean, guess it is, but that's not what it's talking about. And aren't there more than 144,000 Christians? What's the answer? And not only that, wait a minute, but there are 12,000 of each of the 12, but they're all Jews. It doesn't make any sense. It's not who they are. It's not the church. It's not any of the modern cults who claim to be the 144,000. The Jehovah's Witnesses 
claim to be the 144,000 in Scripture. Now, when I witness the Jehovah's Witnesses, I very rarely, this is not a major point, I love to take them to the deity of Christ, but usually they're young men. And I love to ask them, so are you Jewish? Well, I'm one of the 144,000. Really, are you Jewish? Um, no. Are you a virgin? Well, no, I'm married. Okay. Uh, are you sinless? Oh, no. Uh, guess what? You're not. Amen? Let's read Revelation 14.4. Look at the list here. It's not you. You know what's interesting? That Jehovah's Witnesses said they were the 144,000 until they had more than 144,000 members. And then they said, oh, it's the best 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses who get to go to heaven and the rest of them stay on the earth. Well, you can have the earth. I'm going to heaven. Amen? Now, if you're here this morning and you are a woman... You're not of the 144,000 because they're all men. If you're a Christian, you're not of the 144,000 because they're going to be saved during the Great Tribulation. If you're a Gentile, you're not one of the 144,000 because they're Jews. And if you're married or have ever been physically intimate, you're not one of the 144,000 because they're virgins. Is that pretty clear? I think I'm one of the 144,000. No, you're not. And if you are, it's going to be heavy before it gets good. Amen? Now, notice the, the order here. Judah is first. What do you think that might be? Who came from the tribe of Judah? Jesus Christ. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Reuben was the oldest, but remember Reuben lost his birthright because he had committed sexual immorality with one of his father's concubines. So Reuben is not listed first. Judah is. Dan is left out completely. He's not here. Tribe of Dan. Why not? If you've been to Israel with us, we go up to a place called Tel Dan. And Dan was the one who introduced idolatry into the children of Israel. And you go to Tel Dan, and it was a wicked, vile place where they said, don't go down to the temple, and don't get out of the tabernacle, don't go down and worship God there, just stay here and worship the gods we've created. So many believe that's why Dan's not listed. Some think it's because Dan is the tribe through which the Antichrist will come. Ephraim is also omitted um, in favor of his father Joseph. Ephraim, like Dan, was consumed with idolatry, and his brother Manasseh was included because he was the faithful son of Joseph. So, though Israel failed in its mission to be a witness nation in the Old Testament, they will be used mightily by God in the future, and from the Jewish people will come the greatest missionary force that the world has ever known. The result of their efforts will be a redeemed Israel as promised by God and innumerable redeemed Gentiles. So guys, God's not done. Amen? Not done with the Jews. He's got a plan for them. We need to pray for them. And again, I'm, I'm glad that I'm not one of the 144,000 because it would mean I'd have to stay here through the mess. I'd just soon be in heaven. How about you? Because even though they're going to be preserved through the tribulation, think about what they're going to see during those seven years. When we get to all the other judgments, it's heavy. A third of the world's population dying in a single day. People covered head to toe in boils, heat, darkness, people gnashing at their teeth and biting on their tongues and crying out for death and unable to have it. I mean, it's going to be hell on earth. And they're going to be the witnesses in the midst of that. And praise God for them. So who is able to stand? Those who will be preserved to go through the day of trouble. We see that example. And that's going to be what we saw, we saw there in the Jews. Secondly, those who will be delivered from it. 
only after they have endured all the difficulty of the day of trouble. Look at verse 9. After these things, after what things? After the 144,000 are sent out, this huge multitude is now going to appear. Look what it says. After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. This is why I believe the Scripture very clearly teaches that at the testimony of these 144,000, millions will be saved. Look what it says there. The number is innumerable. You know, before when he numbered the angels, he said 10,000 times 10,000. And most people believe it's not a specific number, but it's just saying it's a huge number. That would be 100 million, right? Here, he doesn't even try to number them. He says it's innumerable. So could it be that hundreds of millions of people are saved to these 144,000 faithful witnesses? I think the answer is yes. How awesome is that? Our God is good. Our God is gracious. This is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. When you think, why the tribulation? Remember Revelation chapter 7. Remember God through these witnesses reaching down to earth and millions being saved. Notice it says they're of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. So these 144,000 Jews, this group... uh, will then reach out to the whole known world. They're not going to just camp out in Jerusalem. A lot of people think, wow, Jerusalem's going to be radical. You have 144,000 witnesses. The Antichrist will be there. I believe they're going to be spread out throughout the entire world. They're going to fulfill the Great Commission, reaching every tongue and tribe and people and nation, and they're going to see people saved throughout all of mankind. The Bible says in Matthew 24, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness to all nations, and then... The end shall come. Now notice what it says about these people. They're standing before the throne and before the Lamb. John sees everything in heaven in reference to the throne of God. That hasn't changed. It's the focal point in heaven. And where are they standing? They're standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? Jesus Christ. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament sacrifices. They were all pointing to Jesus Christ. And notice it says they were clothed with white robes. White robes are an emblem of righteousness. Now, why did they have white robes? Because they were such good people? What's the answer? Absolutely not. They're clothed in righteousness because... They've been adopted into the family of God and because they have the righteousness of the Son, Jesus Christ, being imputed to them. Guys, you and I are righteous. Now, your spouse might go, not him, not her, right? I've been hanging out with them, not so much, right? Righteous doesn't mean that we're perfect and sinless. What it means is we're accounted righteous because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So some people might say to you, what do you think you are, some holy Joe? Well, no, I'm actually a holy Dave, right? Why? Not because of my actions, but because of the one who adopted me. We're holy, we're set apart, we're sanctified, we're redeemed, we're forgiven, we're adopted, we're accepted, we're going to heaven, amen? And so they are clothed in white as they are around the throne. Do you think these people are happy to be in heaven? Guys, let me say something to you. No matter how happy you think you're going to be in heaven, you're going to be a lot happier than that. Amen? 
They were in the great tribulation, these hundred that are around the throne of God. And we're going to see that they were martyred for their faith. And they're going to go from being in a place where God's righteous judgment is coming upon the earth, where the Antichrist is reigning, where they're being persecuted and martyred. And now, in a moment, they're standing before the throne of God. And boy, are they happy to be there. Guys, the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And while we grieve for those who have gone to heaven before us, and we, and we should, you know, the Bible does say also, though, that we grieve, but not as those without hope. Amen? We don't grieve for them. Where they are is far better. We grieve for us because we miss them. Amen? And you know what? As a church, the Bible says we, do, we are to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And when people in our body are going through a difficulty, we ought to be the ones putting our arm around them and encouraging them in love. Amen? Amen. So they're in white robes. They're clothed in righteousness. They're around the throne of God. Things couldn't be better. And it says they're waving palm branches. Where do we see that before? Palm Sunday, right? On Jesus' triumphal entry. When they waved palm branches, it was a sign of victory. It was like better than a standing ovation. It was the ultimate victory. It was the ultimate praise. And they waved them to, at Jesus when he was marching, marching through in the triumphal entry. And they cried something out. Hosanna! Which means save now. Save us now, we pray. But they were crying out for the wrong thing. They wanted physical deliverance. And what they needed was spiritual deliverance. But guess what? That doesn't change They're waving these palms as an act of victory before the throne of God. And they too will cry something out. What do they say? Look at verse 10. And crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And notice there's an exclamation point there. Guys, we get to heaven when we praise God. I've said this before. I don't think we're going to be mumbling. Amen? Praise to our God and to the Lamb. That's not happening. And too often, I think in church today, we do that. I'll be reverent and quiet. And I think there's time to be contemplative in our worship and to be quiet before God. But you know what? We cheer for the 49ers, right? World Cup soccer, whatever you're into, right? We go crazy. I was in a Mexican restaurant with my wife yesterday, and the USA scored a goal, and everybody in the ball going crazy, right? And we're going crazy for something like that. How much more should we cheer when we're in the presence of Almighty God? Amen? Amen. Let's not be ashamed of Him. It's okay to be, you know, and, you know, I don't, and if, you're vo- if you're out of tune, it's okay to be loud anyway. In God's ears, it sounds good. Amen? <laughs> Salvation is not something we earn. It's something God gives, and it's something that when we realize that free gift of salvation, it just grips us, and it causes us to want to worship. And, I, and I'm saying this not to talk at you, but to encourage you. If your worship life isn't good, if you don't have a heart to worship God, if you're worried, if you don't worship, well, the loud, music's too loud, it's too soft, it's too fast, it's too slow, it's too this, it's too that. You know what? I think the problem is more with our hearts than what style of music's being played. Because if God is being glorified, I don't care what instrument is being played. We ought to be joining right in with it. Amen? When you get to heaven, you're going to complain? Well, I thought, you know, I thought my heart would be bigger than this. I didn't, you know, right? <laughs> We're not going to do that. We're going to be focused on the Lord. Notice it says they're standing before the Lamb. I love that. 
You know, in heaven, you can't ignore the lamb. And in heaven, we're going to see his nail-scarred hands and feet and his pierced brow and side and the heavy price that was paid by our Savior to redeem sinners like us. And looking upon him who suffered and died, it's no wonder that we will never stop worshiping him. Amen? Every time we look at him, it's just going to be a reminder of his grace. Verse 11, all the angels stood around the throne, the elders and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing. See, Amen. I'm not the only one who says that. See, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. As the great multitude of tribulation saints worships God, the others in heaven, redeemed believers and the angelic host, can't help but join in the voices of praise. All of those who had been martyred, who've been delivered out of the tribulation, they show up in heaven, they're so excited to be in heaven, they begin to praise God, and those who are already there and already around the throne can't help but join in. What a picture of heaven. All of heaven in awe of God's salvation of the great multitude in midst of the great tribulation. God's redeeming work in others and their open and bold confession and untempered praise ought to bring great joy and melt the heart of all of us who are already saved. The Bible tells us when one person is saved that all the angels in heaven rejoice. So too it ought to bring that same uh, reaction from us. Amen? Amen. We ought to just be praising and rejoicing when we see even one is saved. Multitudes saved here, all of heaven rejoices. Verse 13. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these who are arrayed in white white robes? And where did they come from? The angel asked John this. John's like, You're talking to me? Look at verse 14. And he said, Sir, you know. So he said to them, These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in their good works. Is that what it says? What does it say? In the blood of the Lamb. The crowd of worshipers are identified as those who were saved during the great tribulation. They are tribulation saints. The presence of so many tribulation saints is a powerful statement, again, of God's grace and mercy that even in this time of judgment and wrath on the earth, many will be saved. And again, it's worth noting that those saved during the same time period as the 144,000, and again, probably fruit of their, of their salvation, he preserves the 144,000, but this multitude is martyred. Why does God do that? Because God desired to keep the 144,000 preserved so they might continue to witness, and at the same time, he shows mercy, in a sense, by delivering the rest of them out of the great tribulation and bringing them into heaven, even if they had to be martyred to get there. It's far better, Paul said, to be in heaven. Far better than anything this world has to offer. God chooses to preserve some of us through the trials that we might be witnesses to others, while others he delivers out of the trials, again, this case, taking them to heaven. Being martyred for Christ is a heavy and noble thing, but sometimes it's much harder to live for the Lord in the midst of the trial. Amen? You know what? Being martyred for Christ, I've asked that question of myself and of others many times. Are you willing to die for Christ? Absolutely. Are you willing to live and suffer for him? Oh, I don't know. Right? Death is instantaneous, it's done, absent from the body, present with the Lord. It could be that God's going to allow you to stay and you might have to suffer so that God might use you to minister to others. And whatever God chooses to do, does he know best? 
So let's trust him. It's an important thing to finish strong and to faithfully serve him. Notice it says, They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Those saved in the great tribulation are saved just like everybody else. It doesn't change because the tribulation came. Oh, now you're saved by being martyred. No. Can you be martyred and not be saved? What's the answer? Absolutely. Can you die for a cause and be lost? Absolutely. Because it's not how you die, but how you've lived and who you've lived for and who you've confessed as Savior that makes you a born-again Christian. Amen? And so that's the point. We are cleansed not by our good works, not through great suffering, but by the blood of the Lamb. Isaiah 1.18 says, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. They are red like crimson. They shall be as wool. Nothing else can save us but, the, but Jesus Christ himself. Verse 15, Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They are before the throne of God. They're in heaven. The redeemed, enjoying the immediate presence of God. They can come right into the throne room and be with God. There's no barriers. There's no waiting list in heaven. Aren't you glad? It's not going to be the DMV in heaven, okay? You're not going to get up there and take a number and go sit down and wait. Oh, I, I, I'm waiting to see God. What number are you? I'm eight million five. Now, that's not going to happen. We can enter into his presence, and aren't you glad? How's he going to see all this at once? He's God. He can do anything, right? And we can enter into his presence, and they are around the throne of God. Guys, it doesn't get any better than that. These saints knew affliction, and they triumphed over it, but it wasn't the affliction that saved him. It was Jesus and their relationship and their faith in him. You know, it's been said that fiery trials don't produce salvation. They reveal those who have been saved. Just because you go through a trial doesn't mean you're saved. But how you respond to the trial, saving, going through that trial doesn't save you, but how you respond to that trial is a reflection that you've been saved, that Almighty God lives inside of you in the person of the Holy Spirit. Notice as they serve Him day and night. In, the, in heaven, they serve God. How? I'm not sure exactly. But heaven is not only a place of rest from earthly toils and trials, but it's also a place of privileged service to God. Now, I've had some say to me, so in heaven... We're going to spend all of our time worshiping and serving God. That doesn't sound like much fun. Have you ever anybody say that to you? What are we going to do after a billion years of worship? What are we going to do? Uh, we're going to worship some more. Right? I used to say to youth group kids all the time, if you don't like worship, you better start liking it because you're going to be doing it forever. Amen? So get used to it now. You know why? We look at something like that and say it doesn't sound like fun because we're a bunch of selfish and self-centered people. Is that true or not? When I get to heaven, what do I get to do, right? How big is my mansion going to be? Well, you know, I want to live on Hallelujah Highway and I want, you know, I want... Like we're going to give God a bunch of commands. You know what? When we get to heaven, we're going to be perfect and we're going to cease to be selfish and we're going to cease to be self-centered and we're going to see worshiping Him as the great privilege that it really is. And you know what? We'll be blessed to do it forever and ever and ever. And we will not complain. Amen? So it's, it's only our heart. He who sits on the throne will dwell among them. And I love this. This is the ultimate fulfillment of David's great desire in Psalm 27. He says, One thing I have desired that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire at his temple. Guys, we're going to get to do that. 
And again, I think if, I pray this for myself. If I had a clue how great heaven was going to be, I'd probably be more sold out for God. Amen? I think we need to get a glimpse. Finally, last two verses. They shall neither hunger anymore, nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. On the earth they endured hunger and thirst, intense heat, unparalleled persecution from the Antichrist and his followers, and in the end most would be tortured and put to death for their faith. But Paul said this is but light affliction when compared to the glory which is to come. None of us are going to get to heaven and say, all I went through and this is all I get? That's not going to happen. We're going to say, I went through so little and look at all I get. Amen? But I want you to notice something. When they get to heaven, they will no longer hunger and thirst, but they will be fed and filled. When they get to heaven, they will no longer bear the intense heat of tribulation, but will walk with the Lord in the coolness of the day and will be refreshed by the living water as our shepherd will provide our every need. But finally, I love this, and this is a word for many of us this morning. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. In context, this speaks of the tears that come through suffering and trials and great tribulation. On the earth, we'll have our share of pain and tears to endure and bring to God. And you know what? He shows us his love now by comforting us and giving us strength to endure our tears. But one day in heaven, not now, but one day in heaven, he's going to wipe them away forever. As we endure the trials and difficulties and heartaches of this life, what a precious hope it is. It should bring to our hearts to know that in heaven, we will know sorrow or pain no more. It'll be all gone. Aren't you glad? No pain in heaven, no sorrow in heaven, no trials in heaven, no struggles in heaven. The hurt and the struggle of this earthly life will be gone and the tears uh, uh, will be a thing of the past. There'll be no more weeping in heaven. But I love this picture as our loving and gracious God will place his hands on the cheeks of his precious children and wipe away every tear. Is that awesome or what? All we've been through and he'll wipe them away. Thank you, Lord, that whatever trial or heartache or difficulty we are enduring today, there's a day coming when you're going to wipe it all away. Aren't you glad? So he may deliver us through it or preserve us through it or deliver us from it. But whatever we're going through, our God is faithful. He's in control. He knows what he's doing and we can trust him. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you that you're a God who indeed is in control. And Father, this example that we see of your grace, even in the midst of the great tribulation, even as you pour out your righteous judgment, that you raise up an army of evangelists to reach out to a lost and a dying world and millions, if not hundreds of millions, will be saved. Hallelujah. We just praise you for that. Lord, I pray that we would be an army of evangelists to Santa Cruz County. Lord, that we would have that same passion and and drive and desire to see the lost saved as the 144,000 will. And Father, I pray for anybody here this morning that doesn't know you, that today would be the day of salvation. The Lord, as your Holy Spirit would draw them unto yourself, that they would respond. If you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, the Bible says, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. The Bible clearly tells us that we are all sinners and God can't have one sin in heaven or he's got earth part two. So our sin must be forgiven. Our sin must be washed away and it can only be washed away by the blood of the lamb. So this morning, 
if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, you want to know for sure that you're going to heaven. You want to be forgiven. It's as simple as confessing Jesus Christ as Lord and inviting him to rule and reign in your life. If that's your desire this morning, the Bible says, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. If you want to know for sure that you're going to heaven, you want to give your life to Jesus Christ, you want to surrender to him, if that's your desire, just raise your hand right where you are so I can pray with you. Anybody at all. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. God bless you. Anybody else? God bless you, brother. Anybody else? Praise the Lord. God bless you, brother. Anybody else? God is so good. Those of you who raised your hand, just repeat this with me. Repeat it out loud. Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you this morning and I confess that I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me, to make me a new creation in Christ. I believe that Jesus Christ is God, that he died on the cross, and that he rose from the dead. Thank you for forgiving me. Help me to walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.